Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In the South, beneath the apparent unity of the white confederacy, there was conflict. Millions of Southern whites were poor farmers, living in shacks or abandoned outhouses, cultivating land so bad the plantation owners had abandoned it. Behind the rebel battle yells and legendary spirit of the Confederate army, there was much reluctance to fight. The conscription law of the Confederacy provided that the rich could avoid service. Did Confederate soldiers begin to suspect they were fighting for the privileges of an elite they could never belong to? Howard Zinn, People's History of the United States. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 138 of the DHP, and in this episode I'm going to be doing another DHP film review, again of a Civil War-related film, and in this case it's going to be the 2016 film Free State of Jones. This film tells the story of the so-called Knight Company, led by Newton Knight, during the Civil War, a group of people which fought an insurgency against the Confederacy in several counties in Mississippi. Newton Knight was a real historical figure, a Mississippian whose grandfather was actually one of the largest slave owners in Jones County, although Newton himself owned no slaves, and this was apparently due to his religious convictions. He was what's called a primitive Baptist, and as such thought slavery was a sin, although obviously this is quite a radical opinion in the South, especially in the Deep South, like Mississippi, at the time of the Civil War. During the Civil War, Knight served in the Confederate Army, but then went AWOL and eventually came to lead a guerrilla force of both blacks and whites that was resisting the increasingly heavy-handed policies of the Confederate government, things like conscription and the collection of taxes in kind. But before we get into talking about this film, I have some announcements. First off, my Patreon shoutouts, those of you who've signed up to help support the Danger History podcast since the last episode that I made. Big thanks go out to Rodney, to Marcus, to Brian, to Rachel, Alan, Ricky, Brian, Eric, and James. 
Thank you all very much for stepping up to help support the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj for $5 per month or more. And just as a reminder to all of you who are already Patreon supporters of the show, please make sure, if you've not already, that your contribution amount is set to at least $5 per month or more. Remember, we've switched now to a flat monthly contribution instead of the per episode model. And I'm going to be putting out some bonus material in the relatively new future. I'm at hard work behind the scenes working on my bonus episodes on the naval aspects of the Civil War, as well as some other things I hope to be getting out there as bonus material in the relatively near future. And so five bucks per month or more is what I ask for continued access to all that stuff. Also, I have a thank you to send out for a listener who got me something off my Amazon wish list. Thank you to Michael for getting me the book Freedom and Federalism by Felix Morley, which was recently referenced, uh, fairly recently, within the last few weeks, on an episode of The Tom Woods Show, where Tom read a very interesting quote from the book, and then I put the book on my DHP Amazon wish list after hearing that, and Michael was kind enough to order it for me soon thereafter. So thank you, and as always, links in the show notes and on my website to my Amazon wish list, to the Patreon page for this podcast, and also as well, profcj.org slash donate for other ways to support the show. Okay, so on to our discussion of Free State of Jones. The film was directed by Gary Ross, whose other directorial credits include such diverse movies as Big, Pleasantville, Seabiscuit, The Tale of Despero, and The Hunger Games, the first one which, in my opinion, is definitely the best film in the series by far. And Matthew McConaughey, whose roles I normally enjoy, I think he's a good actor, plays Newton Knight, the focus of the film. The movie opens with a brief but very graphic depiction of the Battle of Corinth in Mississippi in 1862, at which Knight is serving as a medic in the Confederate Army, and he's dragging off the wounded on stretchers and getting them to the hospital tent. And we get some very explicit depictions of that whole aspect of the not-so-civil war, the horrific wounds and mutilations that were occurring in battle. Knight then hears from a comrade about some men who are going home because of the so-called 20 Negro Law, which was the stipulation in the Confederate Conscription Act that said that if one owned 20 or more slaves, one would be exempt from the draft, and that for each additional 20 slaves one owned, another military-age male in the family would also be exempted. And a lot of the Confederate soldiers who own no slaves are understandably very pissed off at the unfairness of all this. And you hear the grumblings of things like rich man's war, poor man's fight, all of which was actually true. Soon after that, Knight's very young-looking nephew finds him and says that he's been drafted and has left his unit to come find his Uncle Newt. In the chaos of battle the next day, the two, Newt and his uh, nephew, plan to desert but the boy gets shot and killed. Well, he doesn't die right away. Knight carries him off to get help, but then the boy dies of his wound. Another soldier tells Knight that the boy died with honor, and Knight responds, no, he just died. And in these early phases of the film, there's some good character development, and we're starting to understand Newt's disillusionment. And unfortunately, later on in the movie, the characterization is going to become more kind of flat and static and sometimes clunky and preachy. But anyway, Knight then leaves and heads home to his wife, Serena, who's played by Carrie Russell. Knight's baby child is sick and is treated by a black woman named Rachel. 
and periodically the film flashes forward to scenes set in a courtroom in the mid-20th century in Mississippi, where a descendant of Newton Knight is dealing with a court case, wherein the state is trying to classify this man as legally black because he's got one-eighth African heritage as the result of Newton Knight's relationship with Rachel, which apparently resulted in a common-law marriage with children. Full marriage amongst interracial couples, of course, being illegal in Mississippi in the 19th century and for about the first half of the 20th. The state of Mississippi is trying to prevent this descendant of the Knight family in the mid-20th century from being able to marry a white woman under Mississippi's miscegenation laws. Now, back in the Civil War, Knight, having arrived home, finds out that a lot of the people in his county are unhappy with things like being taxed in kind by Confederate troops, where Confederate troops would come by, and of course, a lot of these dirt-poor white farmers had no money. And so they would just collect taxes in the form of confiscating your stuff. And so already there's some similarities in some ways to the story told by Shenandoah. Knight helps a family ward off the Confederate cavalry in an armed confrontation when they come to confiscate the family's goods, but their leader says they'll be back. Meanwhile, men with dogs try to capture Knight, and he gets bitten by one of the dogs before he's able to kill it. And after that, Knight is guided out to a remote swamp, where there's a maroon community of runaway slaves, and Rachel is out there among them. The maroons are led by a man called Moses, who's played by actor Mahershala Ali, and he and the other escaped slaves show Knight how to survive in the swamp. Moses has a big metal collar device around his neck because he's been caught on multiple escape attempts before. Knight tells him that he knows blacksmithing and can get the collar off of him, and Moses says no, it'll make too much noise and attract the slave catchers. In response to that, Knight arms the maroons so that they can fight off the slave catchers when they come, and he proceeds to take the collar off of Moses. When the slave catchers do, of course, arrive, Knight and the Maroons successfully ambush and kill them. Meanwhile, Knight's wife, Serena, leaves the area and kind of de facto, if not de jure, um, divorces him. Later, Knight's group hold up the Confederate cavalrymen with whom Knight had previously had a run-in, and Knight's group takes a wagon load of stuff that the cavalrymen had confiscated from the farmers of the area. So Knight and his followers are sort of acting like Robin Hoods, where they're fighting against confiscation of their goods and what they perceive as unjust and excessively heavy-handed taxation. As the Confederate cause continues to deteriorate in Mississippi with things like the fall of Vicksburg, Knight's group begins to attract more deserters, and Knight is leading a multiracial crew on a campaign of guerrilla warfare against the Confederate military's attempts to confiscate resources and conscript manpower from this area of Mississippi. And there are racial tensions within the group. The local Confederate colonel in charge in the area offers Knight a pardon if he'll disband his group and return to the Confederate army, but Knight refuses. The back-and-forth insurgency-counterinsurgency conflict between the Knight Company, as they come to be known, and the Confederate forces in the area continues to escalate. And sometimes it kind of feels like the Wolverines from Red Dawn, only set in the Civil War with the Confederates playing the role of the Communists. By the way, one could only wish that this movie had been written and directed by John Milius, like the original Red Dawn, but alas, it's not. Perhaps it would have been a more grabbing, for lack of a better term, film, if it had been made by the great John Milius. 
But anyway, as always happens, the war against the insurgents starts to turn into a war against the civilian population of the area that supports them as well. And there are lots of kind of soliloquies and speeches delivered by Knight. At one point, for example, while holding a double-barreled shotgun over his shoulders in such a way that he's constantly muzzle-sweeping his entire audience, Knight explains that they're not fighting for the Union, but that they are fighting against the Confederates for their own reasons. In response to questions from his followers about what they're doing and why, Knight says that basically he's not opposed to the rich people just because they're rich, but because of how they got rich and how they're using their wealth to use the Confederate government for their own further enrichment and protection at the expense of both the black population, their former slaves, and their impoverished white neighbors who don't own any slaves. And I have to say, I very much identify with and agree with how Newton Knight expresses his disdain about certain wealthy people. That's how I feel both looking historically at back then and at more modern times in the present day about some wealthy people, certainly not all. And I really don't dislike anybody just on account of whatever their income or net worth might be. But I always try to look at how they got it and kind of what they've done with it before I make any judgment about anybody. And if the answer to one or both of those questions involves coercion, force, aggression, etc. in some fashion, then I tend to not look very kindly on them. Whereas a wealthy person whose wealth was earned without all that stuff, I tend to be much more favorable or at least neutral towards. Your mileage may vary. Knight does have a hard time with some of his white followers because they're unwilling to go along with Knight's multiracial force in which the blacks are treated equally with the whites. And this perhaps makes Newton Knight more unusual compared to other similar anti-Confederate insurgent leaders in other parts of the South during the Civil War, because while there certainly were other bands of merry men, so to speak, resisting the Confederate government for one reason or another, bands in remote areas of deserters and so on, what makes Newton Knight less common than just those people is that he also apparently did really have this objection to slavery and this belief in equal rights for blacks. Now, some of this internal dissension leads some of Knight's men to try to surrender to the local Confederates, but when they do, they're simply hanged. At the funeral for these men, Knight's men launch a guerrilla attack during which Knight kills the Confederate colonel in charge by strangulation. Meanwhile, Knight's relationship with Rachel turns into an increasingly romantic and sexual one. And as the conflict continues on, Knight seems to warm increasingly to the idea of not just fighting against the Confederacy, but also fighting for the Union. He makes contact with Union General William Tecumseh Sherman to seek material assistance for his men. And Sherman refuses, indicating that he doesn't think Knight's company are a significant enough force to be worth any kind of investment. Knight then tells his followers that they're now their own country, and he reads a proclamation that says that the counties controlled by them are now the free state of Jones, and he reads off principles that basically have to do with having a right to the fruits of one's own labor and so forth. But while there's some historical evidence to suggest this kind of declaration did take place, it's not like Knight, either in the movie or in what we know of real life, ever actively resisted the Union, for example, when the Union eventually reasserted control over the entire South at the end of the war. So the Declaration of the Free State of Jones is apparently only meant to go so far. It basically was more about rejecting Confederate authority in the area and about trying to be self-sufficient since the Union military didn't want to support their forces. 
but only seeking that self-sufficiency and independence during the duration of, of the war. There's, I don't think, any notion or evidence that Knight or any of his followers ever tried to resist the Union government once it reasserted authority over the area at the end of the war. Well, anyway, after the scene in which Knight reads the document about the free state of Jones, the film then jumps to the passage of the 13th Amendment and then to the immediate aftermath of the war. The black men of the Knight Company, who are now freedmen, are now pissed off that they're not getting their 40 acres and a mule, and they're also angry that some of the prominent Confederate plantation owners are getting their lands back as long as they swear loyalty oaths to the Union. And Newton Knight remains involved during Reconstruction with helping to try to defend the freedmen's rights as spelled out in things like the Reconstruction Amendments. Knight has a child with Rachel and his black friend and comrade Moses, who's heavily involved in the movement for black rights, eventually gets brutally lynched for his activism. Knight continues during Reconstruction to try to do what he can for the rights of the former slaves. In the mid-20th century, Knight's descendant is barred from marrying his white sweetheart because he's one-eighth black and he is sent to prison, but we're told that the Supreme Court of Mississippi overturned the conviction rather than ruling on the constitutionality of the miscegenation law in question. Now, it seems like the film takes a lot of dramatic license with the details, but that said, to be fair, a lot of the details about Knight and his group are quite murky, lost to the ravages of history, so it's not like we're talking about an historical episode on which we have a ton of sound documentation and, you know, drastically rewriting it or anything like that. But I'll link to the Wikipedia page on Newton Knight, which is a well-footnoted and documented Wikipedia page, in the show notes for this episode in case you want to look more into the historical facts that are known about this. And in my opinion, some of the things that are in the real story about Newton Knight that were not in the film are more interesting and may have been better off included in the film. For example, there's a story that supposedly um, what initially caused Newton Knight to go AWOL was hearing that his brother-in-law had been abusing his children in his absence and that Knight then went and killed the brother-in-law for having done this. That's not depicted anywhere in the film. The movie has a lot of interesting themes and makes a lot of interesting points. One of them that I found very compelling was comparing the draft and the pursuit and treatment of those who go AWOL from the military, comparing those things to slavery. For example, the dog that bites Knight was basically a slave-catching dog that was being used then to also catch deserters. And the slaves that Knight meets in the swamp even joke that Knight must taste the same as they do. It also, in the parts of the movie where Knight's group are living in a remote and difficult swampy terrain, brings up the points made by people like James C. Scott in his book, The Art of Not Being Governed, about maroon communities, about state-repellent terrain, about how people are often in history able to avoid being governed which may include potentially being enslaved and or conscripted into the military by going to remote swamps, harsh deserts, forbidding mountains, these sorts of things. And it's absolutely true that in many parts of the South that fit this description, there wasn't much desert in the South, but in places like really difficult swamps and mountainous terrain and so on, you did often have these communities of escaped slaves or during the Civil War years of Confederate deserters and things like that. But again, what makes Knight's group somewhat unusual is their multiracial nature. 
and the fact that Knight himself as their leader was apparently committed to this idea of equality between the races, you know, equality of rights and all that. And the film, of course, makes the same point as a lot of historians lamenting the tragedy of Southern history, that poor whites and poor blacks, or, you know, if you go back further, slaves in the South have generally not made common cause against the oligarchs who kind of screw and exploit and keep down both groups, and that instead they often fall victim to the divide-and-conquer strategy. And this film shows them, at least in this instance, somewhat coming together against their common foe. Now, it's interesting, this is in Mississippi, which was the second state to secede after South Carolina, and the only state other than South Carolina, as far as I know, to have a black majority at the time of the war. But the counties in which Knight operated are... I believe counties that had fewer slaves and slave owners than most of the other Mississippi counties at the time. So again, it shows this correlation in the South between ownership of slaves and support for the Confederacy, and then also the reverse. People with fewer slaves or no slaves, and especially if you live in an area where there are relatively few slave owners, would tend to be the most resistant to the idea of supporting and fighting for the Confederacy. Now again, plenty of people who felt that way were still decidedly racist and still supported the idea of slavery. So Knight is somewhat unusual in that regard. Like with the movie Shenandoah, which I reviewed a couple episodes back, this film seems to have somewhat of a pox on both your houses attitude towards the contending sides of the American Civil War. However, towards the end, the film turns a bit more pro-union, which seems to accurately reflect the trajectory of the real Newton Knight and his thoughts on the matter from what I've been able to tell. However, on the other side, Free State of Jones also does show how much the Union failed to deliver on its promises to the freedmen after the war. So it never quite degenerates into kind of just simple-minded rah-rah-rah for the Union in that sort of way. The film was a box office flop. It made back only around half or perhaps a little bit less of its budget of approximately $50 million. And honestly, I'd never even heard of this movie until it had already been released on DVD, and then only because several different listeners had tipped me off to it around the time I was starting the Not-So-Civil War series. In terms of critical reception, the film received what's normally called mixed reviews, meaning that critics were pretty evenly split over whether they liked it or not. Some who rated the movie negatively, seem to have fixated on it as being bad because it is a white savior story. And I agree somewhat. I agree that they have a point that in the film, the black characters are sometimes depicted in kind of a passive and one-dimensional light. But then again, to be fair, so are most of the white characters in this film, too. That said, some reviewers have criticized the film for not giving more screen time and kind of character depth to the black characters such as Rachel and Moses, and they say that the movie maybe should have been done in more of an ensemble cast kind of a way, with those characters playing larger roles and making the movie kind of more about this part of Mississippi and the insurgency as a whole, and less focused just on Newton Knight. And I'll admit they might have a point there, perhaps that might have been a better way to make the movie. Where I don't agree with some, not all, some reviewers were not like this, but where I don't agree with some of these kinds of objections to the film is where they'll object to the fact that the movie tries to point out that poor white people were also exploited and held down by the southern oligarchy of the Civil War era. In other words, some critics of this film have said it is bad 
that the film tries to make the point that the white lower classes actually should have had some amount of grounds for common cause against the Southern oligarchs. And to illustrate this, here are some lines on this way of thinking from one of the most kind of, I don't know, troubling reviews I've read of the film, which is a review by Aaron Whitney, who apparently is a former writer for Huffington Post, so perhaps I shouldn't be surprised at not liking this review very much, and Aaron Whitney's review of this film on ScreenCrunch.com. And I'll link to the review in the show notes for this episode in case you want to read the whole thing. The review is entitled, Free State of Jones, the All Lives Matter Civil War movie you didn't ask for. And Whitney writes, While Knight's role in aiding and supporting the people of color in the movie can be regarded as a revolutionary act for the time, in today's context, Free State of Jones paints the white men as the only heroes in the story. One scene in particular captures just how troublesome the film's whitewashing and latently racist narrative is to a contemporary audience. During a funeral ceremony, Knight looks down at the body of a dead white boy and in a rousing monologue says, We're all some man's nigger, although Aaron Whitney wouldn't write the actual word. She wrote N-ER. Back to Aaron Whitney's words, this line appropriates a hateful racial slur to describe a white man's oppression. Even worse, it equates white hardships with that of black people. Ross's film assumes that a white man being hung for deserting the army is the same as being a slave and existing as a person of color in America at the time. That's what makes me worry most about future high schoolers watching Free State of Jones or even, say, Trump supporters. In today's context, Knight's message is essentially what's known as All Lives Matter. The phrase, a response to the Black Lives Ladder movement, insists that regardless of race, all lives deserve protection. But the very problematic and dangerous implications of this ideology, which activist Marissa J. Johnson has called a racial slur, are that it denounces the violence and oppression faced by people of color and other minorities. The last thing America needs is a historical movie correlating white people problems with those of people of color, end quote, from Aaron Whitney. So, yeah, there's the, the PCSJW objection. It is bad if white people and black people realize that they have some problems in common. Now, to say that they have some problems in common is not to say their problems are exactly the same or to the same degree or whatever. It's not to say that a poor white person in the Civil War era South is exactly in the same boat on everything as a slave or former slave or what have you. And I don't think the movie was actually saying that so much as it was just saying that this particular real historical example of black people and white people coming together for common cause was a very powerful thing. And by implication, it's a tragedy for the history of the American South that this sort of thing didn't happen more often and on a more continuous basis. But in the eyes of PCSJWs to say that human rights should apply across the board is apparently now a racist thing. Notice that Whitney does not engage the historical factuality of anything that's portrayed in the film. Instead, she attacks it for conflicting with her preferred present-day narrative. Apparently, what bugs her about the film's depictions is that she's quite strongly opposed to poor, oppressed white people finding common cause and common grievances with black people, something that the Southern oligarchs, by the way, always feared above all else. 
And on this, I actually stand with such old-school historians of the moderate and even far-left, such as Edmund Morgan and Howard Zinn, rather than with the HuffPo, PCSJW leftists of today, such as Whitney. To say that poor Southern whites were also screwed by the Southern oligarchy is not to say that blacks weren't screwed worse, but rather to simply point out that the Southern oligarchy used race to divide and conquer, to pit poor blacks against poor whites for generations. This is amply illustrated by books such as American Slavery, American Freedom by Edmund Morgan, and repeatedly in the People's History of the United States by Zinn, and in tons of other books, many of them written by leftists. Furthermore, regarding Whitney's review, comparing the film's message with the current All Lives Matter crowd and with Trump supporters is just completely asinine bullshit. It misses a lot of really key ingredients to this film that are totally not just different from, but opposed to a lot of the beliefs and attitudes of the All Lives Matter crowd and the Trump supporters. The All Lives Matter people are, as far as I understand it at least, generally extremely supportive of the police. And they defend them, the police, against charges of racism and using excessive force disproportionately on people of color. In order for the Knight Company's portrayal in this film to actually be comparable or analogous in any way to the All Lives Matter crowd, the film would have had to have had Knight defending the slave catchers and the Confederate troops, as modern-day Trumpists always defend and champion law enforcement. Whereas, of course, in reality, in both historical reality and in its depiction in this film, Knight's movement were insurgents fighting against the enforcement arms of the state in their area, something that modern-day All Lives Matter and Trumpist factions would absolutely never condone or endorse. I mean, those sorts of people today usually are not even in favor of genuinely peaceful protest, let alone the kinds of things that the Knight Company did in real life and in this film. But unlike old-school leftists like Howard Zinn, the modern-day PCSJW leftists actually don't want people who are screwed by the system to make common cause. They want them to stay divided over issues of race. Whether intentionally or out of ignorance by portraying this film's message in that way, people like Whitney are actually helping to perpetuate the divide-and-conquer strategies that were begun all the way back in the colonial era by the earliest plantation-owning, slave-owning oligarchs. And again, read People's History by Howard Zinn, and you'll see. People like Whitney are saying that oppressed black and white people cannot and should not make common cause. This is a message that I would imagine plantation owners and clan leaders of old would strongly endorse. Now, setting aside those sorts of ridiculous criticisms of the film, a more frequent and, in my opinion, more valid objection to the movie overall by those who rated it poorly has less to do with the overall historical story itself and kind of the message of the film, which seems to have been, at least in the big picture of the story, fairly accurately tied into what we know about the real history with, of course, some creative license in the details. But the more valid and trenchant criticisms of the film have to do with it as a film, looking at it kind of aesthetically, technically, etc. And I'll just read you a couple of examples of just, you know, short sentences and so on from critics who criticize the film on these grounds. So, for example, critic Jimmy Gortz writes, Anyone visiting Free State of Jones merely hoping to learn more about an interesting anti-slavery rebellion will likely come away sated, but those looking for an exciting, vital piece of filmmaking will have to wait for another opportunity. 
Bill Newcott writes, A powerful performance by Matthew McConaughey and an earnest urgency drive the fact-based story. Alas, those good qualities are undermined by a confused and overlong script. And Jordan Raup writes, Free State of Jones has a story worth telling, it just doesn't know how to effectively do so. And last, one that I'll share here, Amy West writes, Ultimately, the film tries to do too much and as such loses its impact. And I agree with these sorts of criticisms to a large extent. I think the film's opening is very strong, but that it kind of fizzles out from there gradually. And it's often too didactic, has too much kind of sermonizing by night. It's a film that's very visually well done and the fighting, you know, battle scenes are well done. It's nice to see a portrayal of this war in a modern, gritty sort of a way that really honestly shows this war's ugliness in contrast to things like for example, Shenandoah, where because of the film conventions of the early 1960s, you could only get so dirty, so graphic, and so ugly. That said, I think the film suffers to a large extent from the same problem as so many other historical and biographical films, in that it's simply too plodding, too dry, too preachy. It's got characters that generally don't seem to be interesting, well-rounded human beings, and it just needed a lot more work on the basics, the foundations of what makes an interesting and good movie. Things like a good script, things like character development, and so on. And for a quote-unquote message movie, I'll agree that the message is a bit unfocused. In the last third of the movie, while I appreciate them trying to illustrate how much Reconstruction kind of let people down, especially the former slaves... The third quarter of the movie, however, really kind of loses its focus and tries to pull together too many historical loose ends in such a way that it just kind of fizzles out. It's almost like the last Lord of the Rings movie where there's so many times where you're like, all right, the movie's over, and then nope, it's still got another scene to tack on. But I do appreciate the fact that this film illustrates an area of antebellum and Civil War era Southern history that in popular depictions ever since has long gotten left out, and that is the plight and situation of the poor whites of the South, the impoverished non-slave-owning majority. They've been written out. Now, for a long time, the story of the slaves was written out or downplayed and so on, but in the last 30 or 40 years, that story has gotten increasing intention. Just think of all the film and television and kind of popular book coverage that the slaves have gotten and that their descendants struggling with the aftermath of that institution have gotten. And by the way, justifiably so. But then the impoverished white majority of the South, which I'm not saying here, and I don't think this movie was saying that they're oppressed or whatever in the exact same way, and certainly not to the same extent as the slaves, but clearly they're oppressed to some extent. But that group of Southern history has been largely left out, at least of popular depictions, and even to a fair amount from the scholarly depictions of this era. And again, I'm not saying that the plight of the blacks in the South should be marginalized or replaced or what have you, but simply to say that there's this gap in people's perception of the South. In the popular perception of the South, there are two groups. There are the super rich white people who own plantations and armies of slaves, and then there are the armies of slaves themselves, and that's it. That's the depiction we get from most popular depictions of either the antebellum South or the Civil War era. And no doubt that is what critics like Aaron Whitney have in their mind when they're criticizing this movie for daring to suggest that impoverished white people in the South may have also had some problems too. 
Again, I think someone with a real understanding of Southern history would understand that the real tragedy of Southern history is not that some white people and black people in a few counties of Mississippi actually found common cause for a little while during the Civil War, and that somebody might think this is worth making a film about it, but that the real tragedy of Southern history is how rare those findings of common cause were, even though there were ample reasons why it should have been much more frequent. Now, in terms of my overall take on the movie, there are some things I really like about the movie. Like I said before, it shows the graphic brutality of this war in a way that a movie like Shenandoah, or even to some extent a movie like Gettysburg, simply doesn't. This movie, especially its opening scenes, are not for the squeamish. But personally, I think it's better when television and movies show realistic portrayals of violence and of the consequences of violence. I think it's actually more problematic when movies and TV show massive amounts of almost video game-like violence without really dwelling on the consequences or the ugliness or the dehumanization of it all. You know, a movie like John Wick, for example, where people are just, you know, killed by the dozens without any kind of a sense of anything. By the way, for a very thought-provoking take on this topic of violence in movies, and among other things, why it might actually be better to have violence be graphic, check out episode 100 of the Clandestine Podcast, which is a podcast I discovered relatively recently and have been enjoying. And I'll link to that episode in the show notes. It's a very thought-provoking discussion about the issue of violence in film. Now, all those nice things about Free State of Jones said, while I have a fondness for the story of Newton Knight and people like him, whether black or white, who fight the powers that be in defense of their own rights and their neighbors' rights, I have to say, just purely as a film, it's only so-so. It has good actors, but it doesn't take full advantage of them, in my opinion. I think it needed a better script, tighter focus, better editing, that sort of stuff. Director Gary Ross made the first Hunger Games movie, which I liked. Interestingly, he did not direct the sequels, which I did not like. And the reason why I say that's interesting is that in technical terms, in just, you know, movie making and storytelling terms, Free State of Jones actually in some ways reminded me of the Hunger Games sequels. And I don't mean that as a compliment. I mean, they're kind of plotting and heavy handed and preachy and the characters are sort of flat. If I were giving this movie a percentage grade, I'd give it a low to middle C, something between maybe a 70 and a 74. I think this story is a largely unknown Civil War story that certainly deserves to be better known than it is, and I do applaud the makers of this film for trying to tell it, but I think that they ultimately fell a bit short of telling the story as well as they might have. Now, on a different note, I don't know if you can tell it in my voice or not, but I'm a bit under the weather, so if I seem, you know, maybe a little bit out of it or whatever, that is why. Also, you haven't been hearing from me as much lately, although I've continued to be working very hard behind the scenes, in part because of being under the weather, I've been slowed down, and also, I've been absolutely clusterfucked from every direction when it comes to work. Just a lot of things piling on all at once. I've been dealing with things that often happen at this point in the spring semester, where I simultaneously have been working on doing all the scheduling for my department for fall classes, and doing some evaluations of adjunct faculty, and grading term papers. And soon I'm also going to be dealing with, aside from the usual end of the semester grading and stuff, I'm going to be dealing with hiring a new faculty member because we have someone retiring. And when a new person is hired for a full-time job, I'm one of the people involved in my department with dealing with that. And that's actually a lot of work going through all those resumes and everything. 
So yeah, I'm just getting piled on at work from every direction. However, as I'm recording this, my spring break is about to start, so I will have a week off, and I'll be spending a good chunk of that spring break actually on something I think I need very much, which is a solo retreat. I'm going to be going down to the Florida Keys for a solo camping slash fishing trip for three nights, and I'll be at least partially off the grid for that time. So don't be surprised or offended if I'm not as responsive to communications during this second to last week of March as I usually am. And I am going to be bringing reading material, research material with me on the trip, though. So work will continue on Civil War-related episodes, including the bonus episodes I have in the works. But I won't be recording anything until after I get back. So hopefully I'll get to reorient my system, recharge my batteries a bit. I've been burned out the past few weeks, really, in a lot of ways. So I apologize for not cranking out episodes as much as I normally do, but rest assured that work continues on a whole bunch of different fronts. So in the relatively near future, you can look forward to bonus coverage of the naval aspects of the not-so-civil war, which may end up turning into two parts, two two episodes dealing with that because of the amount of material I'm dealing with. Also, the next regular not-so-Civil War episode I'm going to do is going to have to do with the Battle of Gettysburg. And then beyond that, obviously that series will continue, and I've got some other things, some related to the not-so-Civil War, some not also in the works, including some other bonus things. But that's it for now from me. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Abe Books affiliate links, 
Go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.